Oh, praise God. That's it. The ultimate right there. When, whenever you get into a community of believers, um, whether it's a small group, a mid-sized group, uh, like a classroom setting, uh, you know, one of the modules we're leading, Jeremy and I are co-leading on Wednesday nights now. Uh, I think there's like 40 people signed up in there. And uh, whenever we get together, that's a good size of group, but when we get together in that room, I notice that people are more reluctant to open their mouth and interact. Like, who has the answer for question number two? Everybody's making sure their shoes are tied or, you know, uh, it's time to pray or whatever. And I get that. Uh, and I just want to say this out loud. Whenever you gather in community, <clears throat> one of the things that is human nature for us is to think about how we fit into that community. So, like, it's the same with trying to, let's use these words, break into a church community or, or come in and be part of a new church family or move to a new city or go to a new school. You, you, whenever you are engaged in new community or even existing community, what happens in our minds is we always think about how we fit in the room. And so we start talking about, in our context, Bible, the Word of God, theology, Jesus, whatever. And as we start talking about those things, you immediately begin to try to place yourself in the community. And it looks something like this. These people know more than I do. I'm way behind in what I understand about the Bible. They know something about the Bible and faith that I don't know. <clears throat> or sometimes it, it's really an inward judgment that we put on ourselves. <clears throat> These people's lives are really uh, awesome and clean and they make good decisions and they have no sins. But I know me and I've made bad decisions and I've got some sins that I'm struggling with and the struggles are real in my life and nobody in here would understand me because nobody in here has gone through what I've gone through or nobody in here is going through what I'm going through. Those are the thoughts we put on ourselves. And I want you to know they're, they're usually not valid, okay? Because what I've discovered is that almost always when you say, I say, okay, well, what are you going through? And someone says, well, here's what I'm going through, Pastor. I can name a church member immediately who's either going through that or has gone through it, and I'll do my best to put you at a, at a restaurant together at a table, and I'll, I, I do a lot of pairing of people up so that you understand you're not the only people who've struggled with parenting and marriage and, and death of a loved one and sickness and, and cancer. And, and the struggles you're having are valid, but other people are having them too. And there's a lot to be gained in community by sitting and talking to people who have walked where you're walking. Matter of fact, there's nothing more healing than this. To let that communication happen where you can see there is hope for tomorrow. Maybe, maybe your relationships are really struggling, but here's people who've been through that and you see how they're happy now. And, and, and they're, in, they're in a blessed marriage and they're raising a beautiful family and God's blessing. Or you're going through this you know, thing with your career and it just looks like it's no, no, going nowhere. People have been there in this room. Matter of fact, just as recently as a few weeks ago, I've watched God answer prayers. Some of them are four, five, or ten years old that we've been praying. And how God has now stepped in and, and done just the miraculous. I just want you to be encouraged by that community. So when we study these people from the Bible, whether they're New or Old Testament characters, and we look at their lives and you're like, why does it matter? This is why it matters. Because you're going to discover something about yourself by looking at these people. You'll see yourself on the pages of the Bible. And you'll see, like we're going to today, maybe some of Abraham and Sarah's family issues. And maybe, some of, maybe that's what you're going to see. Or maybe you're going to see some of the struggles they have with faith. They do believe. They've proved it. They've stepped out by faith. They're living in a, a foreign country now. They're living in tents and they're waiting for God to answer the promise. But even though they do believe, they still struggle with unbelief. Now this is something very curious in the Bible. As we prayed a moment ago, the disciples would say to Jesus, Lord, we believe. Please help my unbelief. <laughs> and I get that now. I've lived that. 
I do believe doesn't mean I have never struggled with any unbelief. You will struggle with some unbelief, and you're going to see it in the lives of Abraham and Sarah. Okay, now, if you were here last week, I'm going to just grab that old story we talked about last week and bring it forward a little further. Abraham and Sarah are old, they're childless. God says, I'm going to do this thing I want to do called God's people. I want to build a people. I want a nation that'll be my nation, a people that'll be my people. And there are no people that'll be my people. They're all idolaters. So I'm going to call you a Gentile from a family of idolaters. And I'm going to make out of you a covenant people called Hebrews or Jews. And they're going to be my people. And we're going to be in a covenant together. And you're not going to worship idols anymore. You're going to worship only the true and living God. You worship Yahweh God. You know, and that's the conversation that's happening. And so they step out by faith and they act on that. But then there's a little bit of this roller coaster thing we saw last week. They go to Egypt. They tell a lie about their marriage. They've had some struggles. Let me open now with a different scene, but it's going to sound very familiar. These are the pivot points in Abraham and Sarah's life. Watch how Abraham cycles back so easily into an old sinful behavior. Genesis 20, verse 1. From there, Abraham traveled to the region of the Negev. It's the desert part of Israel and settled between Kadesh and Shur. While he was staying in Gerar, Abraham said about his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. Now this is like the record needle stuck in the groove now. He's repeating exactly a mistake he made when he went down to Egypt. And when he said, hi, I'd like to introduce my sister, the woman's a knockout. And so when the king sees this single woman who's not really single they're lying when he sees sarah he immediately starts bargaining for her to be brought into his harem abimelech of gerar who had brought sarah to him verse three but god came to the king abimelech in a dream by night and god said to him king you're about to die because the woman you have taken for she is a married woman. Now, the king is like, I'm innocent. I didn't know she was a married woman. Although you in American culture, 4,000 years later, are looking back and saying, hey, why are they bartering for women and buying and selling them and putting them in harems? That's a whole other story, isn't it? That probably we should talk about some more sometime. And that's not even the main part of this story. The main part of this story is he's lying about her being his sister. Another man has taken her into the king's harem. And now God appears and says, King, you're going to die because of what you've done if you don't get this right. Verse 7, now return the man's wife, talking about Abraham, for he is a prophet and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, know that you will certainly die, you and all who are yours now you Jeremy said it's ominous I don't know how that's not ominous you know so he takes someone's wife God appears in a dream and says sir if you don't get this right judgment's going to come upon all of you and your household your kingdom so let me read Genesis 20 verse 8 and keep the story going early in the morning King Abimelech got up and he called his servants together and he personally briefed them on the night's events he personally told them all the things, and the men were terrified. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said to him, Watch these words from a pagan king. What have you done to us? You know, the Christians in America talk a lot about all the sins in America and how God's judging America because of all of our sins. What if God's judging America because God's people are not living as God's people? See, we always want to look out there at the them and say the problems are their fault. Maybe the problems are our fault. Maybe because God's people are living as if they were not God's people. Maybe because we're living faithless lives that don't reflect God's kingdom. Maybe we're to blame for part of the problem or some of the problem or most of the problem. Who knows? So God is working on two different ends here. He's working on a pagan king, but God's also working on his own people, Abraham in this context, and Sarah. And as God's working on his people, 
The pagan king now rebukes God's man, God's Abraham. And he says, what have you done to us? How did I sin against you that you've brought such enormous guilt on me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never be done. Wow. You say, is this possible? Yeah, I've lived it. I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for 50 years. And I've often done things that are worse than what the pagan world might do. If you've ever acted unethically, you know, and you've had to have your boss, who may not be a Christian, look at you and say, what are you doing? We don't do that. (laughs) You're not allowed to do that. Listen, that really stings to be rebuked by the unsaved. And so God allows it, and in my life he's allowed it, in your life he's allowed it. And you know what? Sometimes we need to be rebuked by the unsaved. There's a story in the Bible about a man who's rebuked by a donkey. Maybe we need to tell that story, you know? God can speak through all kinds of people to us, and God has often spoken to me, listen carefully, by people I don't even know if they know God. I've told you stories how people have walked up to me in random situations and said a passing word to me in a restaurant or a waiter or a waitress or someone or a maitre d' or just random people in random places speaking words to me and the words they said went right into my heart like a knife and I knew it had come right from the mouth of God. I'm just as, just as if I were sitting in church and a prophet were speaking to me. Their words stung me because I knew, you know, I didn't want to be a pastor. And I remember sitting in a restaurant, a waitress coming up saying, hi, can I get you something to drink? You're a pastor, aren't you? And I'm like, God, cut it out. Just cut it out. Stop it. And about a week later, exact same thing. And about a week later, the exact same thing. And I'm like, okay, I get it. You're having fun with me. You know, you say, were they pastors? I don't even know if they knew God. But God used them to speak to me. And I want you to know, circumstances in your life, God can use to speak to you. People, God can speak to you. And now a king says, you should, this should, what you did to me should never be done to anyone. Abimelech also asked Abraham, watch this statement, what made you do this? Now this is really revealing. What made you do this? That you lied about her being your wife. What made you do this? Abraham replied, I thought... There is absolutely no fear of God in this place. We schemed and said, hey, we're going into this little region here, and these people probably are really bad people. There's no God here that no one would regard. These people are surely bad people. We don't know them. They're not like us. They're surely bad people. So, Sarah, let's concoct a lie, and you can protect my life. And here we go. And they went into that situation. And then when he's rebuked, the king king says, "What, what made you do this? What were you thinking? And Abraham said, here's what I was thinking. I thought there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Watch 14. Then Abimelech took flocks and herds, male and female slaves, and gave them to Abraham and returned his wife Sarah to him. And Abimelech said, look, my land, here's my kingdom before you. Settle wherever you want. And he said to Sarah, watch this little cut. Look, I am giving... I'm giving your brother a gift. Now, doesn't that sting? You've been called in a lie, and he's using the lie to give you a blessing. I'm going to give you flocks and herds and a place to live, and and my land is before you. Sarah, listen, and I'm going to give your brother 1,000 pieces of silver. It is a verification of your honor to, to all who are with you. You are fully vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife. Get this part of the story you didn't get now. And his female slaves, so that they could bear children. For the Lord had completely closed the wombs in Abimelech's household on account of Sarah, Abraham's wife. There's a part of the story you didn't know at the beginning. When he took Sarah, God said, nobody will ever have a kid in this kingdom again. Unless this gets fixed. Now, there's something about that that takes more time to unpack, but Sarah's womb is about to deliver God's people. And God's like, if you're going to cut my people off, then you know that there's going to be a similar repercussion here upon your kingdom. Now, here's what I want to say about this part of the story. 
Abraham, why did you do this? What were you thinking? Well, I was thinking, surely the Lord is not in this place. There's no fear of God among these people. So I did something dishonest because I thought you were bad people. Now, here's what I want to say. Listen carefully. Sometimes we get it wrong. You and I have looked at people we don't know and assumed things about them which were not correct. You've done it and I've done it. You've sized people up at an initial meeting and you got it wrong. They weren't at all what you thought they were. <clears throat> they weren't scary monsters. They weren't know-it-alls. They weren't bad people. They were different people. Christian, be very careful about misjudging the people around you and especially about judging people's motives for why they do certain things you are especially prone to make bad decisions when you don't live by faith so when you step out of a faith moment like Abraham does and you begin to not trust God you're about to make a series of bad decisions in your life and that comes from the basis of just not trusting God you're people of faith I get that but even people of faith have those moments where you're like yeah, I'm not sure God's got my best interest. I'm going to do this. And when you start doing that, a series of bad decisions will follow. Here's what Abraham and Sarah assumed. <clears throat> they assumed, here we are, the only righteous people. And we're going to go live in the midst of these unrighteous people. And Abraham and Sarah adopted an us, God's people, versus them, ungodly people, attitude. And when you get an us versus them attitude going, you're going to get in trouble. And I'm afraid the modern church has done this exact thing. There's us, and then there's them out there. And the them out there are all ungodly and bad people, and none of them would understand. None of them hear from God. None of them get a word from God. They wouldn't understand if we talked this way. Maybe they would. Maybe God's got people at your company that are his children and you hadn't found them yet. Maybe there are Christians in your class and if you would start living your faith more openly, you'd be drawn to each other like magnets to metal. I have noticed that when you let your light shine, if there are other lights in the room, they begin to shine too. And you're drawn to each other. You discover there are other people who are God-fearing and righteous people. The world is not just filled with bad people. There are bad people in the world. Do we agree on that? But the world's not filled with only bad people. You're going to be shocked as you live out your life that wherever you go, God's got somebody there. Listen, I've gone to the deep jungles of the world to preach the gospel. And when I got there to let my light shine because there was nobody there who feared God, I found all kinds of people who feared God. And when you start saying it out loud, they're like, I believe that too. And you start coming together and then you start sharing the gospel to the people around you. We should not live xenophobic lives that are wary and distrustful of everyone who's not like us. That sentiment can get whipped into a frenzy in our culture. And I want God's people to be very cautious about this. The Bible is very clear to treat the people who sojourn in your country with love and kindness, generosity, and respect. The Bible is filled with this in the Old Testament and more in the New Testament. We are not to be distrustful of everyone not like us. God has people scattered all around you. Know this, you are not alone. And when we go into a new surrounding or we move among a new group of people that we don't know well, we should be asking, Holy Spirit, show me, show me who else is here that's like me. Spirit of God in me, show me who else you are living in. Let me, let me be drawn to those. Let me find camaraderie and fellowship and companionship. And I promise you, you will. God has people. Well, oh, so here's what happens. Abraham and Sarah are rebuked by a pagan king. They get their hearts right. They, they get their faith right. They make it right with the king. Everything's good. All is well. Sarah finally conceives a child now in her old age. And she's pregnant with, with the baby. So we're all good. Insert happy ending right here. Not quite. Things go fine for a while. 
But then chaos descends on the home of Abraham and Sarah once again. And the drama comes to a real head when Hagar's son starts mocking Sarah's son. You know how siblings do with each other. They tease each other and they, they, they pick at each other and they, they haze each other. <clears throat> but when the children are from two different women, it takes a whole different turn now in this family dynamic. Let me read it to you. Genesis 21 verse 8. The child grew. This is Isaac. This is Sarah's baby. And was weaned. And Abraham held a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son mocking the one Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham. So she said to Abraham, Sarah said to Abraham, drive out the slave with her son. Boy, notice this wording. Once he took her into his bedchamber, she no longer slave, she's his wife. Matter of fact, Sarah said, take her for your wife and I'll raise children through her. This was all Sarah's idea to put Hagar in Abraham's bed. But watch how the wheel has turned now. Abraham, I want you to get rid of that slave and her son, for the son of this slave will not be co-heir with my son. Oh, no. See, the little boy Ishmael was making fun of somehow mocking little Isaac who was just uh, weaned. And a grown woman who's supposed to be the mother of God's people got so insulted by two kids teasing each other that she lost her Christianity. Is that fair? Have you ever lost your Christianity over something silly? No. <laughs> yeah. I've been flipped off more times on I-35 than I could count. And I guarantee you half of them are Christians. I guarantee you. You know? I, and I just use that as a simple example. I know that we have all lost it. And when we look back, we lost it over nothing. We, we got all upset about nonsense. And I want to say this to you and I about how we judge other people. Know this about us as a maturing body of Christians. When believers get rid of their outward sins, they often hang on to their inward sins. When we get rid of that which people can see, we often harbor sins that people cannot see. And sometimes Christians who've gotten rid of their outward sins still hang on to hate and jealousy and envy and pride and bitterness and anger and lust and all of these inward kinds of sins that no one can see. And there is nothing uglier than a believer who has a chronic, snarky, and critical attitude. Criticism is not one of the fruits of the Spirit, ladies and gentlemen. It is not. And if you find yourself being constantly critical and snarky, that's something that you really need to work on with God's Spirit and ask Him to change about you because there's nothing more unattractive in one of God's children than something like this. So the result of this is, Abraham, I will not have this slave and her child being co-heirs with my son. I will not stand for it. I'm putting my foot down. And so now out goes the slave woman. And out goes her son. Wife number two, Hagar and Ishmael. Now this is all of the, the Arab nations now. Ishmael is the father of all the Arab nations, a child of Abraham. And so when you watch the news every night and you see the unrest in the Middle East, it's Abraham's Ishmael Arabs against Abraham's Isaac Jews still struggling in a 4,000-year-old battle for who's going to be daddy's favorite. Does that make sense? And there's strife. And there was from this moment until this very hour. So out goes the slave and out goes her son and they have to go away and start a new life while Abraham and Sarah and Isaac rebuild their family life right here. And things go along nicely for a while, so we're all good. Insert the happy ending. Not yet. So now, Isaac is growing up in their home. They've got a, a, a growing boy. Let's, let's just make, him, make, make up an age. He's, he's 10, 11, 12 years old now. 
he's a strapping young lad shooting up through his blue jeans and outgrowing his shoes and growing like a weed. And, and now Abraham and Sarah start making a monumental parenting mistake. They begin to center their lives around their long-awaited son, the child of their old age, Isaac. Isaac is everything to Abraham and Sarah. The sun rises and sets on Isaac. And many modern families are reliving this same scenario that we see in the Bible. The entire family life of the home is built around the nucleus of the children rather than building the entire family life around the nucleus of the parents and their faith toward God. The activities of your children can demand all of the energy of the family. You be careful, parents. The activities of your children can demand all of the energy and time of the family to the point that they become the nucleus of your family life. And I would strongly caution parents to, I'm not saying don't have your kids involved in stuff, I'm saying limit the number of activities to which you allow your children to be involved in. Don't let the tail wag the dog. Involve your children in things that will develop them. I especially like to recommend to parents, you know, you're going to do whatever you want to do. I understand that. Involve your children in things they can carry into adulthood, not things they have to leave behind in childhood. Looking back now on all the sports I played, I wish somebody had taught me how to play golf as a child. Or tennis. You know, something I could carry into my adulthood and keep doing with my friends and my spouse and my family. It, you know, it's very hard when the family gets together for Thanksgiving to say, okay, everybody strap on your pads. We're going to play football in the backyard. You know, that that's not, just doesn't work out. What, what I'm saying to you is involve your child in things like language, arts, that they can carry. I mean, almost everybody in the room wishes you could speak a couple more languages. And we regret that our parents didn't beat us over the head and force us to learn them. And yet we're repeating the same mistakes as parents by not exposing our children to things that will make them, gosh, I was, you know, I, I've got one about to graduate from college, so I look through the job listings all the time. I send, I send emails out all the time. Hey, Jack, uh, here's a nice job. Hey, hey you know, uh, where mom and dad will get flight benefits with American Airlines. Uh, no, no selfish motives behind that at all. Uh, anyway, and uh, uh, I, I'm just saying, when I go down through those job listings, helping my son find a job, and I see, you know, looking for someone who can speak German and English, looking for someone who can speak Italian and English, looking for someone who can speak Spanish and English, you know, French, and all those language jobs that are out there that are good-paying jobs, I'm like, man, parents missed, missed an opportunity right here. And I don't want to get on my rant or a soapbox about that. I just want to say, as young as possible, parents, get your children on the schedule of the parents. Now, understand, when you've got a newborn, you're on their schedule. The goal is, as quickly as possible, get them on your schedule. That's the real task at hand. You want them on your eating schedule. You want them on your sleeping schedule. You want them on your activity schedule. And, let me throw this in there, you want them on your worship schedule. Your children should never have to ask you on a Sunday morning, are we going to church today? I can say this about my parents are flawed in many ways. But I never had to wake up on a Sunday morning and ask them if we were going to go put God first in the week. I just got up and started getting dressed because I knew we were going to the house of the Lord today. And we were going to get our worship on with the Lord. And we were going to be a family in the house of God. And that imprinted me. That imprinted me. To know that God always comes, first day of the week, first thing we're going to do, we're going to the house of God today. Now in the old days, you couldn't throw a baseball on Sunday, remember that? And you couldn't go shopping with the blue laws, remember that? Uh, some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. Yeah, but, but listen, and that's okay, I'm not against doing other things on Sunday. But I am a pro putting God in a priority place on a Sunday. Some churches worship on Saturday night, fine. Then worship on Saturday night, that's the real Sabbath day anyway. You know, uh, fine, no problem. I'm just saying make God a priority and model behavior for your family so that your children see. Discipleship is about seeing modeled behavior. Discipleship is not about coming to church for 50 years and letting the pastor sermonize you for an hour a week 
it will not change your life and your behavior. It needs to be modeled for you. And I want to say this to all the moms and dads, sermonizing at your children an hour or two a week will not change their behavior either. They need to see something. They need to see mom and dad living out a different ethic. I'm so convinced about this that if you would just show affection to your spouse in front of your children, they will begin to pick up on the idea of how you ought to love one another. And I took it to extremes, and I'm not saying you should do this. But there were times when I would say to our junior high age boys at the time, come in here, I'm going to show you how to kiss a woman. And I would grab Susan up and lay one on her, and they'd run screaming through the house, gross, gross, gross. You know, I'm just saying, if you never saw your parents hold hands, put an arm around each other, talk. Listen, there's a lot of children growing up in this world who have never heard a mother and a father speak kindly to each other. I bet there's a lot of kids in your classes at your school. I bet there are hundreds of children who will attend your school this week who've never heard mom and dad speak kindly to each other and affectionately to each other. This is our broken world, and we as God's children need to show them something different. And it's what you show your children in the home that's going to really imprint upon them. And you, you men, many of you men have a good work ethic because you saw your parents have a good work ethic. It imprinted on you. Some of you love the way you love because you saw your parents love that way. And I'm just saying that some of you are givers and kind, and you've seen that in your parents. It stuck with you. You know, I'm sure you know that Michael and Rick and these who have buried loved ones so recently, they're thinking those thoughts right now about how this man changed my life with his work ethic, with his love, with his, the way he treated my siblings, the way he treated my mother, etc. And that's beautiful to take away. That's a heritage you want to give to your children. And it's almost like Isaac becomes the focal point of their lives instead of God. Now, they're people of God. I'm not saying they're not. But Isaac is everything, Isaac is everything, Isaac is everything. Hebrews 11 now, going back to the New Testament. God's about to test Abraham and it becomes a pivot point. Matter of fact, the, probably the biggest pivot point in the rest of his adult life is just about to be before you on the pages of Scripture. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested. Now you say, well, I don't want to be tested. But testing can be a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Testing can show who you are. Testing can show what you missed so you know where to, what areas to work on or what you need more help with. And so God then tested him and offered up Isaac. He received the promise and yet he was offering his one and only son. The one, the son, about whom it was said, your offspring will be called through Isaac. And here's what the writer of Hebrews says about Abraham. That Abraham considered God able to raise someone from the dead therefore he received him back figuratively speaking now when that's summed up in the book of hebrews the details of that story are found in genesis chapter number 22 so let me take you there quickly genesis 22 let me read take your son god speaking to abraham take your son your only son isaac whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. Moriah became the city of Jerusalem later. And where, there, where God is commanding Abraham to take Isaac is Calvary. It's the mountains of Jerusalem. He's asking him to take him up to those places up there and offer your son as an offering to God. Now, when you read this in your modern ethic... This is so mind-blowing. We don't do sacrifices. And when you start now throw a human sacrifice in here, man, our heads explode and we're like, what is happening right now? Genesis 22, 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, these are servants, you stay here with the donkey. The boy and I are going over there to worship. And then we'll come back to you. Now that statement right there is how the writer of Hebrews determined what he was going to say in the book of Hebrews that Abraham believed that if he offered Isaac that God could raise him from the dead and so in the offering he then received him as if it were back from the dead now he never did offering we'll get to that but in a figure is what the writer of Hebrews is saying so now 
How did Abraham turn to the servants and say, the boy and I are going to go worship, we'll be back in a minute. He knows he's going to offer him. How can he say to the servants, we will be back? He believes if he offers him, that God will raise him from the dead. Why? Because God has promised that that son represents the future God's people. The nation that God is going to build is through Isaac. And that is the promise that's been made to Abraham. This is a real test of his faith now. He's going to take the center of his world, basically, outside of God, and going to put him on the altar, and God's going to see if he keeps his, his word. Six, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, and he laid it on his son Isaac, and in his hand he took the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked together. Then Isaac spoke to his father and said, Abraham, uh, my father, here am I, your son. Isaac says, the fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb? Dad, I obviously we're going to make a sacrifice. We got fire, we got wood, you got a knife. We're going up here to build an altar. Dad, did you forget to bring the lamb for the burnt offering? Now, I don't know how to make this as somber as it must have been. How are you going to look at your son and explain this to him? Watch, watch how Abraham does this. Abraham said, son... God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Now you have to get into his head. Abraham's either thinking, well, God gave you as a miracle child to us in our old age, me being almost dead. So he can raise you back up again if he asks me to offer you. It's a test of my faith. Then the two of them walked on, verse 9. And when they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. And the angel of the Lord called from heaven and said, Abraham, stop. Do not lay a hand on the boy, verse 12, or do any harm to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. When Abraham looked up, he saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went over and took the ram. Anybody ever been deer hunting and you've hunted all day and found nothing and suddenly you're walking the truck and there's a 10-point buck caught in the tree by its horns and, yeah, it doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. So God stops him and says, I have provided a sacrifice right here. Look over here in the bush, in the tree. The sacrifice is caught by its horns in the tree. Now, of course, in literature, this is called foreshadowing. And this foreshadowing in the book of Genesis is looking forward to another sacrifice on the same mountain. A son that's going to be offered. A sacrifice that God is going to provide. And 2,000 years later, <clears throat> on that same group of mountains... God sent his only son to be the sacrifice for our sins. God stepped in. God didn't demand that you died for him. He sent his son to die for you. Which leads us to the next big thing that happens here. Abraham, now in the Bible, going forward, <clears throat> will be called the father of Israel. Okay? So Abraham, as the father of Israel, that's wording you're going to read all over your Bible going forward from this spot. Matter of fact, many of you grew up in church, and in children's church, you sang something like, Father Abraham had many sons. Do you remember that? Yeah, it just drones on forever. Uh, but the point is, why does the church, and why does Israel, and why does history constantly refer now to Abraham as Father Abraham? That combination occurs 75 times in your Bible. And here's why. Because when Abraham steps onto the scene, he understands his place in the story of God. I wish you and I could come to grip our place in the story of God and live out our place, our role on the stage, and say our lines as well as these people did. And I think your Christianity would be transformed right now in your own generation if you could understand the script you've been given and that this is your time to take the stage and your time to live by faith and act out what God has called you to act out. Abraham understood clearly. Abraham understood that I am Father Abraham. I am to be the father of God's people. I am to be the new beginning of what will be the people of God. 
And he had crystal clear understanding of that. And all of the rest of the Bible writers who are going to write about Abraham now will call him Father Abraham because they all understood the role he plays in the Bible is the father of God's people. Matter of fact, in his own discourses, Jesus invoked this language personally. When Jesus was talking to his Jewish brothers and sisters, he would talk about Father Abraham. Let me read it for you, John chapter 8. I speak what I have seen in the presence of the Father. So then you do what you have heard from your father. I think Jesus just insulted them. Here's what they said. Our father is Abraham. We're Jews. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would do what Abraham did. But now you're trying to kill me a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. Abraham didn't go around trying to kill people who were speaking God's truth. You're doing what your father does. They responded, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. <clears throat> Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. If God were your father, you would love me. Because I came from God, I am here, and I did not come on my own, but God sent me. It's a fascinating conversation. Verse 52, the Jews said, we know you have a demon. I'm going to have to give account of some things at the judgment if there is you know, like I was haunted in my childhood. They told me it was going to play out. But then another group came along and said, you'll never, anyway. I have plenty to account for. It's all under the blood. How about that? I would hate to stand before God and be the people who pointed to Jesus and said, you have a demon. Wouldn't it be scary? <laughs> they said, Jesus, you have a demon. Jesus said, why are you trying to kill me? You're not Abraham's kid. They're like, you have a demon. That's what we can tell. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. And you say, if anybody keeps my words, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you claim to be? Jesus said, verse 54, if I glorify myself, Jesus answered, my glory is nothing. My father, about whom you say he is our God, he is the one who glorifies me. And let me tell you this, you don't know him, but I know him. And if I were to say I don't know him, then I'd be a liar like you. Does that reframe any of what you understand about how Jesus talked to people? But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it, and he was glad. Jesus, 2,000 years after Abraham, says to the Jews, Abraham was so glad to see me, so glad to meet me. Now the Jews reply, sir, you're not 50 years old, and you claim to have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, what are the words? I am. When Moses said on the mountain, God, reveal yourself to me and tell me who you are. Show me who you are. Reveal to me who you are. If I go to Egypt and I say to them, God has sent me, whom shall I say has sent me? And God said, you go down there and you tell the world, I am that I am. And the great I am has sent you. You know who Jesus just claimed to be? God. And the Jews got the message the jews were arguing that because they were biologically abraham's children they had special standing as the people of god and their appeal to father abraham was the highest argument they could make it was really the first argument they made then the conversation swings to god versus the devil being your father and jesus told them that although he was a jew he was really sent by God and God was his father 
Then Jesus further told the Jews present that Abraham rejoiced to know me and you should do the same. I met Abraham 2,000 years ago under the oaks of Mamre recorded in Genesis 18. Now, I say all of that to say to you that Father Abraham becomes an argument all through the Bible now. Who are God's people? Who are Abraham's children? Stephen, who preached one of the greatest messages recorded in the New Testament, we think he was a deacon in the first church. He stands outside the gates of Jerusalem, about to be stoned to death by an unsaved apostle Paul, who was called Saul of Tarsus in those days. And Saul of Tarsus is about to stone Stephen, and they say, do you have anything you want to say? And he stands up, and he preaches Acts chapter 7, one of the longest sermons recorded in the Bible, fantastically historic. In other words, he just goes back, and he just starts with a history lesson of who God is and what he's done among his people. Listen to Stephen. Brothers and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran and God said, leave your country and your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Now, I just say that to say to you, these are Stephen's final words and he goes back to father Abraham to build his argument in his dying sermon, okay? With all of this talk about Father Abraham, you can see that there is confusion among the Jews about what it means to be God's covenant people. They thought they were God's people because they were biologically Abraham's descendants. The New Testament is telling you something completely different. They thought they were God's people because they were biologically Abraham's descendants descendants even though they killed all of the old testament prophets who spoke for god and even though they're going to kill god's only son they thought they were special even though they constantly broke the covenant that made them special they lived outside of it and then still claimed special status jesus said abraham is not your father they're like yes he is and jesus like no He's not your father because children do what their parents do. Children do what was imprinted upon them by their mom and dad. You can watch some of these kids walk through our hallways here and you can tell who their parents are by the way they walk. You can tell who their children are by their mannerisms. You have imprinted upon your children certain things. Jesus said you're not... Abraham's children, you're you're of your father the devil, and the works of your father you will do, and it comes natural to you. Children do what their parents have modeled. From the Gospels forward now, this marks a shift. From the Gospels forward, the Bible is about to make a remarkable claim about exactly who are God's people. If these biological descendants of Abraham are not God's people, then who are God's people? So now the Bible flips the script on you, and the Bible starts talking about Abraham as the father of all believers. I want to read a few passages, and you'll get it really quickly. See, we're asking, how could Abraham be my father? I've got 2 or 3% slave blood in me. I've got Irish blood in me. I've got German blood in me. America is a mixed race of people. How could I? I have no Jewish blood in me that I know of. How could I be Abraham's children if I'm biologically not in that line? That's the question the Bible's about to answer for everybody in this room. Here it comes. Paul starts talking about Father Abraham in Romans 4. Let me read it. What will we then say about Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. If he's a good man, maybe he's better than some of you, but that won't give him standing before God, okay? For what does the scripture say about Abraham? Here it comes. Abraham, what's the next word? Abraham believed God. This is faith in action. And it was credited to him for righteousness. Paul's quoting Genesis 15 verse 6. Paul goes on verse 9. 
is, is, is this blessing only for the circumcised then? Only for the Jews then? Or is it also for the uncircumcised, the mixed up people like you and I? For we say faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father, Abraham, of many nations. He is our father in God's sight, in whom Abraham believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things to existence that did not exist. Abraham, he believed, hoping against hope, so that he became the father of many nations according to what had been spoken. So will your descendants be. In other words, God spoke, Abraham believed the word of God and acted in faith on the word of God. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead since he was about a hundred years old and also of the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised God was able to do. Now, if nothing else, I'm challenging you this morning. When you read the Word of God, what God has promised, He is able to do. This is part of your faith. To believe that when God says something, He is able to pull it off. 22, therefore, it was credited to Him for righteousness. Now, it was credited to Him, was not written for Abraham alone, but also for Why was this written? Not just for Abraham, ladies and gentlemen, but to a people that would come along thousands of years later and live in Texas. It was also written for us that righteousness will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead. He was delivered for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. Now let me try to pull this together quickly. Israel is an idea. Let's come back to that, okay? You say it's a country. No, it's an idea. It's a concept in the mind of God. And Israel was God's plan to have a people of God. Since there was no nation of God, God would start his own nation. He went and got Abraham and Sarah and said, I'm going to bless you with a child in your old age. And through that child, I'm going to build a people of God. And the people of God will stand in stark contrast to the people of the world. The people of the world worship idols. The people of God will worship only God. The people who are not of God live like they lived in the antediluvian world. Hedonism, Darwinism, humanism. They live to, for comfort. They live for pleasure where the physically strong took advantage of the physically weak. And that way of living always leads to violent conquest. God's people will be different than that. And the biographers are very careful to show you when the New Testament opens that Jesus was a descendant of Abraham. They're very careful in the genealogy. When, when, when Matthew opens, this is the account of the genealogy of Jesus. He's the son of David and the son of Abraham. What the New Testament is trying to show you is that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God had promised to you. He spoke a promise and he fulfilled his promise. Everything God said he would do, he is doing. And when Jesus came, he lived a life that showed us what love really looked like. He lived a life that showed us what God really looked like. And Jesus' life became the standard of the new humanity that God was going to launch upon planet Earth. He told us to start living like we belong to that kingdom now. You start living out the ethic of the new kingdom. It's in its inaugural phase, but one day it'll come in its completion and its fulfillment. And until then, start living with a kingdom ethic. Live in faith. Let me say it again. Israel is an idea. It's not simply about being genealogically Abraham's child, but by being Abraham's child by following the faith of Father Abraham. Watch how Paul wraps it up. He says, by faith in Jesus, you're adopted into Abraham's family. When you act like Abraham acted, which in this context means believe God by faith, you become Abraham's child. Watch it play out. I'm in Galatians now. You know then 
that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. Let me ask you a question. Do you have faith? You are Israel. You are God's people. You are the new people of God. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham saying all the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. You know what God said about Abraham's faith? It was counted, credited to his account for righteousness. You know what God says about your faith? When you believe on Jesus Christ by faith, you are credited the righteousness of Jesus Christ as well. The Bible makes such a big deal about being the new, the church is the new Israel. You are the new people of God. And in the new people of God, we're not asking you to show your family tree before we let you in. We're not asking what is your parentage. We're not asking what is your past. We're not asking what are your sins. We're not asking what is your baggage. You know what the church is asking? Do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? We're asking a simple thing. Do you believe? Do you have faith? Have you exercised your faith? Because if you have, then you are God's children. These are some of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. I'll, I'll read them. Be my last reading this morning. Galatians 3. For through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. And in the new people of God, in Christ, there is no Jew, there is no Greek, there is no slave, there is no free man, there is no male, there is no female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. There is the new ethic right there. Now, you don't lose your identity. I mean, obviously, you're male and female. Obviously, you are, have a passport that says you're a citizen of a country. What he's saying is that's not what makes you the people of God. What makes you the people of God is faith in Jesus Christ. That's the new. So we say it this way, and I want everybody to kind of get this down in your heart. Anyone, that means red, yellow, black, white, any socioeconomic group, rich, poor, middle class, anywhere on the spectrum, Jew, Gentile, Indian, American, German, British, Filipino, Nepali, Chin, Tongkul, Maring, Russian, Romanian, doesn't matter. What matters to be the people of God is your faith in Jesus Christ will get you adopted into the family of God and you will become the covenant people of God. And that's wonderful because 2,000 years later, there is now new empires. There, we have new empires that weren't even heard of in the Bible. New nations that didn't even exist in the Bible and you're living in the big one right now, the United States of America. There's no such thing as that in the Bible. You're the new empire. And you know what? In the new empire of America, we don't run around saying, I'm pure blood German, and I'm pure blood Italian, and I'm, I'm pure this, and I'm pure that. Matter of fact, that's kind of a white supremacist attitude to have that kind of, kind of a racist attitude to have that kind of attitude. In America, we don't care what you are. Well, I'll say it a different way. The church of Jesus Christ cares about this. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? And I want you to know Whatever your background is, whatever your ethnicity is, whatever you are, you're welcome in the church of Jesus Christ. We love you, and we're learning to love you because God loves you, and he's telling us he loves you, and he's telling us that if you believe by faith, we need not be xenophobic and scared of people not like us, that we need to embrace them as the people of God who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. You say, Pastor, why are you showing all of this to us? Here's my last argument to you. Do you see what a mess Abraham and Sarah are? But when they're talked about in the New Testament, nobody says they're a mess. What happened between the Old and New Testament that all of their sins get covered up? And they become just these great people of faith. What happens is Calvary. What happened was the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
so that when God sees them, he doesn't see their sins in the New Testament. He only sees their faith. And when God sees their faith, he credits his righteousness to them and their sins are under the blood. These people are not the exceptional ones because they had fewer sins than you have and they always make better choices than you make. These, the hall of faith is filled with the flawed, yet faithful. Now, these stories are not in your Bible, so you will see, oh, I could never be like these people. The author of the Bible is drawing you into their lives so that you can put your life right beside their life and say, hey, they're just like me. You're being drawn into the story, not excluded from the story. That's what I want you to see. The hall of faith is for you too. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I, I want you to think about what was said this morning. When thoughts of doubt arise in your heart and, and you think, well, I'm, I'm not sure God loves me. I want you to think about these words now. God spared Abraham's son, but God did not spare his own son. And that is precisely because he loved you. If you get to thinking, I don't know if I matter to God, God spared Abraham's son, but he didn't spare his own son. And that stands as an eternal witness to how much God loves you because he gave his son for you. God believes in you even when you haven't believed in him. Even when you doubt God remains faithful. Even when you and I live outside the rules, God still loves you. Even when we break our covenants, we can say about God, great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There's no shadow of turning, no wavering with you whatsoever. You're just solid and consistent and the anchor of our faith and of our lives. We've learned about Abraham and Sarah not to judge their bad choices and bad behaviors, but we've looked at their lives to judge our own bad choices and bad behaviors. And maybe when you've seen their inconsistency over a lifetime maybe God's spoken to you about some of your own in this stillness right now I want you just to engage with God right where you are if you need to kneel at an altar that's fine but just engage with God for a moment and say God you've spoken to me in these weeks as I've seen Abraham and Sarah and I've seen what you did through their lives how you've loved them and you've remained faithful to them and you honored your covenant with them. God, help me to be a man and a woman of faith and God, help me to be consistent in my walk. God, thank you for never giving up on me. This is a call to reorder our lives ladies and gentlemen, this morning. It's a call to make God the nucleus of our home, the nucleus of our life, and to build outwardly from there. Maybe some things have crept into your lifestyle that have kind of crowded God off to one side, and he's just a kind of a footnote to our week instead of the center of our life every day. If that's the case with you, then I want you just to talk that out with God for a moment. Say, God, as best as I can right now, I want to recenter my life around you. And I want to build outward from there. God is here. Tell him, Lord, I believe. I believe you're with me. I believe in new beginnings. 
I believe in your mercy and your forgiveness. For every one of the redeemed, I'd like you to say to God this morning, God, I believe my story belongs in the hall of faith. I want to, I want my, I want to stand beside these people and let my faith be counted in my generation as I live out my role in the story and as I say my lines in the newly inaugurated kingdom of God as I live out my life in my generation I want my life to stand in the record book as a man and a woman of faith if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ this morning I want to give one last opportunity to you to formalize your covenant with God this morning by asking Jesus Christ to come into your heart and be your Savior. God sent His Son for this purpose, to be the substitute for you, to pay your debt on the cross. And He rose to be your Redeemer and Savior. If you're ready to formalize your belief in Him, I want you to pray with me right now. Pray like this. Dear God, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. And Lord, I know you know that, but I need to, I need to confess it. Lord, I'm a sinner, and I can't save myself. I have no righteousness of my own. And I throw myself at your mercy this morning. Jesus, I believe you're everything the Bible declared you to be. The Son of God who came and died in my place and rose again to be my Savior. This morning, I want to formalize my covenant with you, and I want to say to you, please forgive me of my sins, wash me and cleanse me of the guilt and the stain and the burden of sin. Lord Jesus, I receive you as my Savior and my King, the Lord of my life from this moment and for all of eternity. I'm asking you right now by faith to adopt me into your family and make me part of the people of God. Put your spirit God, I pray into my life right now and fill my life with your presence, with your power, with your light, with your love. This is my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.